Good morning, Redeemer Church. How are we doing? Good. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We have studied the first three letters to the churches uh, that Jesus addresses. The church at Ephesus, we asked the question, where's the love? Because Jesus said, this one thing I have against you, that you have lost your first love. The love that you had at first, your love for me and your love for one another. Then we looked at the church at Smyrna, and he challenges them and calls them to be faithful unto death. He says, you guys are doing well, you're being persecuted, even one of your people has been put to death, but um, you're going to receive more persecution, but I encourage you and exhort you to stay faithful all the way to the end, because there is a crown of righteousness that awaits you as you do. And then last week, we looked at the church of Pergamum, and the title of the message was No Compromise, because the church at Pergamum had compromised their faith, they compromised their doctrine in order to um, appease people within the church and to follow Balaam. Well, this morning, Jesus addresses the church in Thyatira. And so we're going to be studying verses 18 through 29. If you would read along as I read aloud. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching, and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan... To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. At 2.20 a.m. on April 15, 1912, the impossible happened. The unsinkable ship sank. The most celebrated cruise ship in history nosedived to the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean. She had sailed four days, from, uh, four days ago from South Southampton, England, on her first voyage en route to New York City. No expense had been spared to make it the most extravagant cruise ship ever. All went according to schedule until that fateful Sunday night when the Titanic sailed into an ice field. She had received four warnings of impending danger from ships that were in the midst of the ice that day. But the controllers of the Titanic 
ignored every single one of them. Several of the warnings didn't even make it to the bridge or to the captain himself. And at 11 p.m. on that Sunday night, the wireless operator of the Titanic, his name was John Phillips, he received a direct warning from the ship California. It was about 10 miles away in the midst of all of the ice. But Phillips had grown tired from sending messages all day to America. And so at that point in the trip, he was tired and he cavalierly replied back to the California, shut up, shut up, I'm busy. Forty minutes later, the ship ran into the mountain of ice. And hours later, it was plunged to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean along with 1,500 of its passengers, becoming one of the most devastating events in in world history. The church of Jesus Christ is in the same situation. We we look good. We, We speak a lot of truth that is good. We are doing things that are good. But we are in danger. And it seems like the church is just asleep at the wheel, unbeknownst of what is uh, uh, out in front of our way. It's like the church has a a malignant tumor that is unseen on the outside. It is undetected that is on the inside. And there is something that that is unfettered within us that is expanding and expanding. And we're like the Titanic. If we don't pay attention, it's going to be our demise. And what I'm talking about is sexual sin. One of the the clearest gauges of sexual sin in our world today is the world's use of pornography. I could use a different kind, a variety of kinds of statistics to give you, but I think pornography today gives us an indication of how rampant sexual sin is. Let me just tell you a few things about uh, pornography in our world today. There have been 500 million searches on the Internet for pornography since January the 1st of this year. 15% 15% of searches on the internet are for pornography. 24% of people with a smartphone admit to actually having porn on their phone. Porn brings in $13 billion of annual revenue in the United States of America. Uh, one uh, person who has written, I think, for porn and about porn says, It seems so obvious. If we invent a machine, the first thing we're going to do after making a profit is use it to watch porn. 85% of young men watch porn at least once a month. 35% of young women do. 9 out of 10 boys are exposed to pornography before the age of 18. 6 out of 10 girls are. Listen to what the U.S. Department of Justice has said. Never before in the history of telecommunications media in the United States has so much indecent and obscene material been so easily acceptable by so many minors in so many American homes with so few restrictions. Let us not think that it's just out in the world somewhere as if it's its 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 own entity out there that we just don't have to know about. 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women admit to being addicted to pornography. 51% of pastors say that internet pornography is a temptation. And so if if pornography is an indication of sexual sin in our world, then sexual sin is a mountain of 
uh, it's like the mountain of ice as the Titanic was running into it. If we're not careful, we will also run into it and it will be our demise. As you look your eyes down on the text today, what I want you to know is that our pure and powerful Lord affirms the church's fruitfulness. But he calls her to the carpet in the area of sexual sin. He confronts the sin. He rebukes the sin. He, 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 he talks about how um, those who, who continue in the sin are going to see their own demise and their own judgment and ultimately their own execution. But then he says, if you walk faithfully and if you love me and if you pursue me, then there's promises to be had. There's blessings to enjoy. There's victory to be won. There is a crown awaiting you as well. So what I want to do this morning is I want to deal very closely with the text itself, and then I want us to deal with principles and applications that will deal specifically with our circumstance. So take a look down at the text. That We have the same outline as we've had the last three weeks. It's the people receiving the message, the person giving the message, um, the proclamation of the message, and the promise. The people, the person, the proclamation, and the promise. So first of all, we see the people receiving the message, and it's the, the church in Thyatira. Now, you must know that the, the details of city life in Thyatira are kind of a mystery. We don't know a ton about the city. Colin Hemer, in his historical work on the seven churches, it says the longest and most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the cities. Interesting. Robert Mount says the difficulty interpreting the letter grows out of its numerous references to details of daily life that have become obscured with the passing of time and the lack of archaeological evidence that would reveal its past. So we don't know a ton about the city, but we do know some very important things. All right, Some things that are not necessarily important to us is that it was about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. As, as the letter was traveling along, they would just move about 40 miles. And it was a center for, for um, manufacturing and commercial trade. Now, that's what we really need to know. It was a center for manufacturing and commercial trade. A lot of stuff was made there. A lot of products, raw products, were ultimately formed and made into things like linen and, and leather and wool and bronze and pottery and, and dye. And what they would do is they would take this, this leather and linen and everything and they'd ultimately sell it to somebody who would then turn into leather sandals and linen clothes and purple dye and, and uh, all, all the way down the line. It was a hub for manufacturing different kinds of a, uh, items. And we actually get a testimony of this in Acts chapter 16, don't we? Because Acts 16 tells us about a woman named Lydia who's in the city of Philippi who is from the city of Thyatira. And what is she? She is a seller of purple goods. Interesting. And what is also interesting about it is that Thyatira is a long way away from Macedonia. So apparently Thyatira's reach in its manufacturing goods went all the way across the Aegean Sea into Macedonia and penetrated Philippi itself. Now, trade guilds or, or unions were huge in this city and in this area. It's also very significant to know. And uh, just looking at a couple guys who work with UPS know a little bit about union, what a union is, right? And they were huge in Thyatira. Archaeological evidence shows us there were guilds for leather workers, linen workers, wool workers, slave traders, bronze smiths, bakers, potters, tanners, and dyers. All of them had, had either multiple unions, their own union, or one big union, all right? But, but the important truth to know here 
is that the union, or the guilds as they might have been called, were deeply and intricately tied into worship, into religious worship. And unfortunately for Christians, unfortunately for Christians, it wasn't Christianity that it was tied into. It was tied into the worship of the sun god. Um, I think the sun god's name was Taramnas, okay? And, and so Taramnas, the sun god, was looked at as the, the provider for the city, the protector of the city, and the one who blessed the city's trades so that the more that they worshiped this sun god and the more they gave homage to him the more he would bless them and all of their trades and the more business that they would do and the more that they would be able to sell and the more prosperous that they would be and so they would engage in in this worship of sun god which involved sacrificing um, animals and then eating the meat and then having sexual orgies and all kinds of things mixed into one and Christians were in a difficult position here because if they worked a trade, the, the only way for them to really work the trade is to be in the union. And if they were in the union, they had to participate in the union things and activities. And so it created a, a really big problem for them. It created a, an ethical dilemma. And I, I, thought about a, I thought about a picture I could give you. Imagine Redeemer Church as a, as a church full of welders. Think, say we're, we're a bunch of welders in here and the only way to get welding jobs here in calhoun county is to be a part of the welding guild the welding union all right because if you if you if you weren't part of the union then you weren't getting any of the bids if you weren't getting any of the bids you weren't getting any of the work if you weren't getting any of the work you weren't getting paid if you weren't getting paid you couldn't support your family all right and so um the welding association in calhoun county was is tied though to the new age movement and, and in the New Age movement, they worship Mother Earth, and they sit around and burn incense to her, and they uh, have feasts and drinking parties, and it's down at the local bar, downtown Anniston, and so they drink into drunkenness, and then they have uh, indiscriminate sex with people all over, and, and, and uh, you know, Christians are thinking, wow, I don't, I don't know what to do here. I, I need to provide for my family, but I know that this is against the Lord's will, and it's unholy and all of that, and, and what, what was going on in Thyatira then was some Christians were like, no way, Jose, we're not going to have anything to do with that. I'll, I'll starve or move before I participate that. Then other Christians were like, well, I don't know. I mean, God says that he's going to bless us and he's going to provide for us, but this is the only way that he can provide for me and my family. I, I don't think maybe I should do it. And then others were already in the boat. There were Christians who were participating in this. And, and along comes this woman, Jezebel. And she says that she's got the answer to the problem. She's got the solution. And she essentially comes, she's inside the church. She has invaded the church. And it's not so much that she has a pulpit. It's not so much that she's able to teach on Wednesday nights. But by the power of her influence, by the power of her persuasion, she begins to tell the people in the church, listen, this is not that big of a deal. Okay, listen, it is for freedom that God has set you free. All right? And, and, and this is the thing. Your spirit is different from your body. Your spirit has been saved. It's being sanctified. One day it's going to be glorified, and you're going to be like Jesus. Your body, it's just, it's just flesh. It's just skin. It's just matter. There's a separation between your body and between your spirit. Your spirit's being made whole, but your body, it's not that big of a deal. And so participate in these things. It's actually good for you. Sexual experience, sexual adventure, getting out of the zone. I mean, do you really want God to, to dictate everything that you do, or do you want to do what's best for you, Jezebel is saying. And so this is the kind of influence that she was having within the church. 
And so in the church, there's probably three groups. There are those who are resisting Jezebel. There are those who are being tempted by Jezebel and don't want to do. And then there are those who are already in bed with Jezebel saying, you know what, for the sake of my family and for sake of my sexual freedom, I'm also just going to jump right in with it. All right, guys, that's, that's the people who are receiving the message. Now, let's look at the person giving the message. First of all, we see his identity. It says, this is the words of the Son of God. Most agree that this title of the Son of God indicates his deity, his authority, and his power. His deity, his authority, and his power. But what I did is I looked back at the Gospel of John, and I looked at the epistles of John, and I looked at this, this either terminology, the Son of God, or the reference of the Son to the Father, and I, and I asked the question, so what, what, what do the Gospel of John and the epistles of John actually say about the Son of God? I just want you to listen to this. First of all, as the Son of God, He's the Savior of the world. John 3 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So as the Son, He is the Savior. But as the Son, He reveals the glory of God. John 1 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only, of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then a few verses later it says, No one has ever seen God, but the only God, or the only Son, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So the Son of God is not only the Savior of the world, but He's the revealer of the glory of God. When you see the Son of God, you behold the glory of God. And so you say, He, he is not only my Savior, but He's also the revealer of the glorious God whom I worship. He also is the revealer of the word of God. Listen to what he said to his disciples in John 15. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. And so as Jesus is right here in, in Revelation 2, revealing that these are the words of the son of God, he is essentially saying these are the words of God himself, because I reveal the very word of God He's also the only way to God. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father but through me. And so you, you can forget the idea that you can somehow get to God through the Son God in Thyatira. You can forget the, the idea that you can get to God through just sexual freedom and sexual uh, adventure outside of the covenant that my Father has created because I am the only way to there as the son of god he's the the satisfaction of the wrath of god listen to first john four ten. in this is love not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins we've defined it before but the son is the propitiation of sins means that he is the wrath satisfying sacrifice of the sins that you and i have committed you realize that our sins deserve God's wrath and his anger and his judgment, and God is going to execute his, his judgment upon uh, those who, uh, who have sinned. But Jesus being the Son of God, he satisfies that righteous judgment and that righteous wrath on our behalf. That's his function as the Son. And then I want to give you one more. As the Son of God, he's the source of eternal life. Listen to what 1 John 5 says. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. 
and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so before we go another moment, I want to ask you this question. Do you have the Son of God? Do you have Him? Do you love Him? Have you submitted your life to Him? Because if you have Him, you have eternal life. If you don't have Him, you don't have eternal life. And condemnation and damnation and judgment are yours unless you give your life up and surrender it to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and He will wipe away all of your sins and the guilt of them, and He will make you new and give you the assurance of eternal life forever and ever. So that's his identity. He is the Son of God. Look at his appearance. He has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. These fiery, flaming eyes reveal the penetrating power of Christ's omnipotent vision. The penetrating power of Christ's omnipotent vision. You know, when you're thinking about seeing the eyes of Jesus, you might have been thinking, oh, um, are they going to be blue eyes? I know he was Jewish. They're probably not blue eyes or, you know, or brown eyes. They're dark eyes. They'll be, they'll be really beautiful. And, and here the text says they're, they're burning, flaming fire. And so what, what Jesus is indicating is that he sees everything. He sees everything outside the church and the world. He sees the darkness and the depravity. He, he sees inside the church and he sees both the good and the bad he sees inside homes he sees inside bedrooms he sees inside workplaces and offices and cars and airplanes he sees everything he sees it whether it's holy or unholy nothing goes beyond the view the penetrating view of the lord jesus christ the son of god and 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 then he says i have feet like burnished bronze in other words he's saying not only not only can I see everything, but I'm also powerful to do something about it. Because these feet of burnished bronze indicate strength and, and splendor. All right? So he has both vision and power. One of the, one of the historians uh, wrote this, With penetrating eyes, he can see into the deepest and darkest places, and with his powerful feet, he can stamp out all opposition to his lordship. So this is the person giving the message. He is the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and he has feet with burnished bronze. He sees it all and he has powerful to deal, he has power to deal with it. So let's look at his message. Let's look at the proclamation of the Son of God to the church at Thyatira. First, we see the confirmation. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So with his powerful and penetrating eyes, the Son of God sees the works of this church, and he says, that's great. You guys, you guys are full of love. Different from the church at Ephesus, you actually love me, and you love others, and, and your pursuit of the highest good of other people is a good thing, and I affirm that. I confirm that. Continue on in it. And, and not only that, but you have faith. You continue to put your trust in me. Praise God for that. Your service. You are less concerned about fulfilling your own desires and more concerned about meeting the needs of others. You work diligently for others. You work joyfully for others. That's a good thing. You're persevering, he says. You're unwavering in your commitment to Christ. And you're making super progress. Look at the end of that phrase there. Your latter works exceed the first. That means you're, 
You're better today than you were yesterday. You're making more progress today, not only in your sanctification, but in your service and love for others than you did when you first became Christians. This is the mark of a good church. This is the mark of somebody who really is seeking to glorify God. You guys are doing well. You guys are increasing more and more in, in works and in faith and in perseverance that I applaud and confirm and affirm. And I do that now. And that's good. And that is a little bit of a lesson, y'all, that any time that we are, are in a situation of conflict or certainly of rebuke, it's always good to affirm the good that, are, that is in people, the good, the, the good attributes, because you, you don't want to go and, and, and uh, just, just level people when they have a lot of good things about them. And, and so that's exactly what Jesus does. But then he brings the confrontation. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate. That is, you permit. You allow. You, you let it go on. That woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And so the confrontation is simple. They tolerate Jezebel, all right? They tolerate her. They permit her to spread her damning message. And so we don't know what this woman's actual name was, but Jesus calls her Jezebel. And it's, a, it's an allusion to 1 Kings and 2 Kings, the wife of Ahab, who was the queen. And, and what we know about Jezebel is that she grew up in a pagan immoral, idolatrous home and city. And then she ultimately moved to Jezreel to marry Ahab, and she brought her paganism and idolatry and sexual immorality with her, and she had a lot of influence over Ahab. Matter of fact, she had more influence over Ahab than Ahab over her, and so she convinced Ahab to build this, this temple in worship to this idolatrous god, Baal god. And within this temple, there was all kinds of sexual immorality and paganism. And I think there were like 815 of these, uh, these false prophets who worshipped Baal and influenced others. And so, so inside the nation of Israel that had pledged its allegiance to the Lord God, here you have sexual immorality and paganism and idolatry, not just creeping in, but blasting its way in. And Ahab, as the leader of that nation, does nothing about it. He tolerates it. He permits it. And so that's why Jesus calls this woman Jezebel, because the exact same thing is happening. So <clears throat> Jezebel is promoting sexual immorality in the church. Of course, she's not calling it immorality. She's persuading Christians to explore their sexuality, to live a little, to try different things. Um, She's, she's teaching that sexual exploration and adventure outside of marriage is natural and good and harmless to their spiritual life. She's accusing faithful Christians of being tightly wound and legalistic and fundamentalism and prudes and killjoys who don't understand freedom in Christ. And even though she has had time to repent, she won't do it. She loves sexual sin, she practices it, and she recruits Christians to join her in it. And that's why Jesus confronts the church and he says, I have this against you. You know what's going on and you won't do anything about it. Robert Wall, who's a commentator, wrote, Jezebel symbolizes the corrosive powers of false religion among the people of God. And y'all, I just read that and, and when I read the word corrosive, 
it just, it just hit me hard, corrosive. Well, what does it mean to corrode something? Um, corrode means to destroy slowly by chemical reaction. And so over a period of time, the, whatever it is that is corroding just disintegrates. And I think that that's what happens in the church when sexual sin goes unchecked. It doesn't happen. The church just isn't immediately, automatically just boom. But it just corrodes and corrodes and corrodes until it's nothing like what it was intended to be. And I just don't ever want Redeemer Church to be that way. And I will tell you, I, I just want to be very serious in this message. And I, and I want to confront the very concept of this because I don't want us as a church to go unwarned, unprayed for, and, and just turn a blind eye. There are churches all over the world and all over our country and even in this county who are turning a blind eye to sexual sin, and we're not going to do it. We will not do it. All right, so he then not only confronts them, he condemns them. Look at verse 22. He says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to turn a blind eye to this. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to deal with this sin decisively and clearly and effectively. Look down at your text. There are really three indications of how Jesus is going to do this and the violent nature of it. The first of all, he's going to throw her onto a bed. Now, the ESV translates it sickbed, um, but it really, it just, the, the word is bed, and the inter- I think the proper interpretation would be a bed of suffering, a bed of suffering. I'm going to throw her onto a bed of suffering, and, and, and she is going to suffer because of her sin. And then those who join with her, I'm also going to throw them into great tribulation. I'm going to throw them into great amounts of suffering because they hear my words, the words of the very Son of God, and they reject my words and accept hers. And so I'll throw them into the same situation that I throw her. And then her children, those who fully embrace all that she is, I will strike dead. Dead means dead. This is not the language, y'all, of a father disciplining his children. This is not the language of a shepherd tending his flock. This is the language of a judge. This is the language of a judge executing judgment upon a guilty people. And I think the key to understanding that, look down at verse 23. He says, All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each one of you according to her works. You see, Jesus knows that human behavior is an expression of the human heart. He knows that your lifestyle is indicative of what you love. He knows that that your habits are indicative of where your heart is. And he said that in the Gospels numerous times. And so as you live a lifestyle of sexual sin, then you're showing that your love is for sexual sin rather than for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, in this case, the The heart of Jezebel and the hearts of those who join her are hardened toward the gospel. They're callous toward Jesus, and they're fixated on sexual sin. John Piper has made a a great statement, and I want you to, to take note of this. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied in God. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied in God. And sexual sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with Jesus 
Christ. They find no satisfaction in Christ. And they will be judged because of it. And I I do want to make this clear statement right now. That if you are not satisfied in Christ, and you are satisfied in sexual sin, you will be held accountable for it. You will be judged for it. And so there would be a call today for you to repent and turn before it is too late. Now there's a consolation that Jesus gives here, though. Look at verse 24. He says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. He's just simply saying, if you're holding fast, if you're persevering, if you're not giving in to her ploys and her ways, and if you're not going into those temples, if you're not engaging in sexual immorality, then hold on fast and persevere. I'm not going to put any more on you than the ridicule that you're already observing, the suffering that you're enduring, and all of the problems that you're having because of your faithfulness. And I need you to know that I'm coming. I'm coming for you. So hold on and hold fast and pursue after me hard because there's going to be a reward at the end. That's the consolation for all those who would remain faithful. And then he gives this promise. Put your eyes back down on the text again. He says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. What does he promise? He promises authority. He promises victory. He he promises glory. Hey, listen, you don't persevere in the faith and remain strong and pure and holy by the grace of God and by, by throwing yourself upon the gospel for nothing. Christ says there is, there is a reward for you. You're going to be victorious. Not only are you going to be victorious, but you're going to rule. Not only are you going to rule, but you're going to, you're going to see and behold and share in my own glory. This, uh, this, this word morning star here is, is really, uh, if, you, if you were to open up five different commentaries, you'll, you'll find five different interpretations of what it is. But why don't, why don't you just hold your place right here for a moment and go to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, I believe that what Jesus is saying is, is if you persevere in faithfulness and in love and in purity, then you're going to receive myself as a reward. Look at, look at chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they might enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral same words as our text and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood i jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches i'm the root and the descendant of david the bright morning star and so he says there are the sexually immoral all right they're there But they're not going to inherit what you're going to inherit. As you remain faithful, you're going to inherit the morning star, which is me. And you're going to have my nature. You're going to have my character. You're going to have my purity. You're going to have my glory. And and you will enjoy it forever and ever. Go back to Revelation 2 now. Yeah. Now, we don't know exactly how the church in Thyatira responded. But, not, but what matters is not how they respond, it's how we respond to this message, right? right. All right. So, 
I want to ask the question, first of all, why is sexual sin such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? And so I want to, I want to give you three reasons why sexual sin is a sinking ship. Three reasons sexual sin is a sinking ship. The first one is it destroys the purpose of your life. It destroys the purpose of your life. Does anybody, can anybody quote the Westminster Confession of Faith? Question number one, what is the chief end of man? Does anybody know that answer? Yes, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the chief aim of your life. And so when you sin sexually, you, you, are, you are denying what the very chief aim is. You're not enjoying God and you're not glorifying Him at all. In fact, you're belittling the glory of God. Remember, sin is what you do when you're not satisfied with God. You're not satisfied with who He is. You're not satisfied with His provision for you. You're not satisfied for His promises unto you. And so you go and find satisfaction in places other than God Himself. And so, I want you to know this. You go to sexual sin to serve as a functional Savior. That's why you go to sexual sin. You want it to save you, all right? But the problem is, is then when you go to it as a Savior, it doesn't meet all of your needs. And so this would-be Savior actually becomes then your master, and you become its slave. And you become enslaved to something that can never deliver you. It can never be your Messiah, because there's only one Messiah. His name is the Son of God, okay? It's very important. So it destroys the purpose of your life, but it also destroys the trajectory of your life. I know I talk a lot about trajectory. What is the trajectory of your life? What direction are you headed? Which way are you going? I just want you to know, I've met a lot of people who are embroiled in sexual sin. I've never met one who is loving Christ with all of his or her heart and soul and mind and strength and loving their neighbor as their self. I've never met one who is embroiled in sexual sin who is loving God and loving others. I haven't. People who are in bondage to sexual sin, listen, are selfish, prideful, caustic, jaded, accusatory, greedy, manipulative, deceitful, very private, and always working an angle. And if you can't see all that on the outside, trust me, it's going on on the inside. Because that is the very nature of sexual sin. It prevents you from being humble and open and loving and honest and giving because you've got something to hide. You've got a private life to protect. You've got a selfish uh, flesh to, to gratify. You've got thoughts that you can't open up to. You can't be honest. You can't be humble. You can't be serving because you're trying to feed yourself. You're trying to feed your flesh and you're trying to keep it a secret. No other sin has the enslaving, debilitating nature that sexual sin has. Check out the letters in the New Testament. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thess, 2 Thess, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, all the way down to the end of Revelation. Read those books and see how much Jesus and all of the writers talk about sexual sin. Why? Because it's enslaving. Why? Because it prevents you from being all that God has created you to be. Listen, Paul Tripp has written this about sex. He says, sex has the perverse power to master your heart and determine the direction of your life. It gives you the buzz that you're in control while at the very same time becoming the master that progressively chains you to its control. It offers you an inner sense of well-being while having no capacity whatsoever to satisfy your heart. 
It seduces you with the prospect of contentment producing pleasure, but leaves you empty and craving more. It holds out the possibility of finally being satisfied, but instead causing you to envy whoever it is that has more and better than you do. It sells you the lie that physical pleasure is the pathway to spiritual peace. It promises you only what the Creator can deliver. Guys, it destroys the trajectory of your life. And then third, it destroys the design of marriage. It destroys the design of... And I want you all to get this right here. Sexual sin has become so normative that we think of sex as something altogether separate from marriage. We talk about it in terms of sex being its own entity. Oh, you can have sex outside of marriage. You can have sex inside of marriage. You can have homosexual sex, heterosexual sex, or you can be bisexual. But, but we have created sex as its own entity, and God never intended it that way, ever. God has said that a man shall leave his parents, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The only proper expression of sex is in the marriage covenant. And within that covenant, it is good and holy and proper and beautiful. And, 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 and it, is, it is glorious even in the eyes of God. But outside of that, it is, yeah, debauchery. The Hebrews writer said, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. God has never intended sex to be an entity in and of itself, and so it destroys the design of marriage. Now let's get practical. Now let's get very practical. Jezebel was saying, explore your sexuality outside the covenant of marriage because that's where real enjoyment is. That's where real excitement is. That's where you're going to... to, um, engage in and experience all that you've really longed for in your life you need to come and do this god wants you to be happy anyway and so um at, uh, if you're no, taking notes write down this question how are you tempted to believe the lies of jezebel how are you tempted to believe the lies of jezebel and i want to address single men single ladies husbands and wives and parents and even if you don't fit into one of those categories, I think it would be good for you to listen and even take notes in this area. Single men first. You're tempted to believe Jezebel's lies, and, and I think in a great way. I think Jezebel would say, listen, single men, you are, you're not married. And who knows if you're actually ever going to get married. It may be two years from now. It may be five years from now. Hey, you may still be single when you're 50. Do you really want to delay what your desires are for that long? You need to, you need to enter into some type of sexual experience now so that you don't miss out. Plus, all of your friends and all of the people that you follow on Facebook and all of the people that you went to high school with are enjoying this. You need to enjoy it now. God would have it so. He wants you to be happy. And the reason I think that single men are, are most prone to attack is because they're isolated. I think they have fears. They're confused. They have doubts. They don't have the security of a wife or a family. They're a lot of times lonely. A lot of times they live in their own house or their own apartment or they have their own little bedroom and they can just swim in the thoughts that engage their mind. And apart from Christ and apart from the gospel, then it, things can just run wild. You need to know that you're susceptible to the lies of Jezebel. And so single men, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pursue Jesus Christ as hard as you can. 
pursue him as hard as you can. I mean, Paul was a perfect example. He says, I, I run toward the, the goal of the upward prize of Christ Jesus. I'm running after him, and I, I beat my body, and I make it my slave, that, and at the end I might, I might attain it, I might achieve it, because I see the glory of Christ, and I want to know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may attain ultimately to the resurrection of the dead. Pursue after him hard. Run after Jesus, the Son of God. Second thing single men is live in community. Live in community. I think, I think because of your, your proneness to be isolated, to be private, to have your own little world going on, you, you need to be at every Sunday service. You need to be at the home groups. You need to come to Thursday night build. You need to do Frisbee with everybody on Thursday afternoons. You need to be involved in work days. You need to be involved with everything you possibly can as a single man in the community of faith. All right, but you, you need to be with the people of God to spur you on toward the glory of God. And then you need to be accountable. You need to be accountable. I don't, I don't care whether or not you have a sexual sin problem right now or not, but you need to pursue a man who is more mature than you, who is walking in holiness, and you need to be accountable for your life. And, and, and we could go in, on and on about accountability. We can do that later. There's good forms of accountability. There's bad forms of accountability. There's an upwardness to it. There's a sanctifying part of it. And then there's those who don't use accountability well. But I will tell you, accountability is good. It's the principle of passing down the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints that you also might be holy. And, and the, the fourth thing I want to tell you is just be confident. Be confident that what God has said and what God has promised is better than what Jezebel says and what Jezebel promises. Just, just believe that. And I know that doesn't sound super practical, but as you read the Bible and as you just soak in God's Word, you've got to know that, that Jesus is a truth teller, that He knows what's best, that He knows not only what's right, but what's going to ultimately bring you the most satisfaction. And so just be confident, because Jezebel is a liar. She is a deceiver and a manipulator. Single ladies, I want to speak to you as well. Your temptation to follow Jezebel's definition of womanhood, I think, is subtle but very significant. And so I, I'm just going to read what I wrote on this point. Jezebel would say to you, dress provocatively to get the guy's attention. Be aggressive in your relationship with men. Don't wait on a godly man to lead you toward marriage. He may never come. Then what are you going to do? Try to get as many guys' attention as you possibly can. It doesn't matter whether they're single or married. You deserve to be petted and pampered. So find a guy who will do that for you. Use him until he stops or you get tired of him. And then go find another. Now you're likely going to have to have sex with these guys, but it's a small price to pay for security, relationship, and love. Now that's really the message of Jezebel to to, to women today, especially women in the church. And so what do you need to do? First of all, you need to entrust yourself to God. Single woman, entrust yourself to God. He is your provider. He is your protector. He loves you way more than, than what Jezebel says that she does. God is worried about your soul. Jezebel is worried about temporal happiness. And then be discipled by a wiser woman. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, read that, read that passage. Find a godly woman who is walking with the Lord and get underneath her and listen to her and meet with her and pray with her and express your concerns or your struggles with her. Be accountable to her. 
And in that, this would be the third one, be accountable for the way that you dress and the way that you interact with men. Be accountable for the way that you dress and then the way that you interact with men. Because you want to protect not only yourself, but you want to protect the men who are in your life and the men who are in the church. And then I'll say the same thing to you as I said to the men. Be confident that what God has said and promised is better than what Jezebel has said or promised. All right, husbands and wives. Husbands and wives. Your, your temptation to listen to Jezebel is, is also significant. It's, it's sometimes a little bit different. This is what Jezebel says. God's provision for you is not what's best for you. Your spouse doesn't prioritize you or love you or meet your needs. And so Jezebel says, you, you can either do God's will or do what's best. And so she, perf- this is what Jezebel does. She's subtle. She persuades you to have lunch at the office with a person of the opposite sex. Or she persuades you while you're on Facebook to, to, to friend and then start an online chat with one of your old boyfriends or girlfriends from high school. She persuades you to, to, to stay up late at night after everybody else has gone to bed and watch television or look on the internet and, and begin to do that. It's, it's very subtle. It's very subtle. But Je- Jezebel does it in a subtle way because she knows that her, her attack has to be a little bit different toward those who are married. But what God is saying all the while is that the marriage bed is holy. Drink water from your own cistern. Give yourself to your spouse. Love your wife, men. Honor your husband, ladies. But if you aren't careful, you won't hear his voice. And so let me give you some, some, some practical things, husband and wife. First of all, pursue Christ as a couple. Pursue Christ as a couple. If you're not praying with your spouse, if you're not reading the Bible with your spouse, start doing that. I think one of the best ways to to ward off the the temptations of Jezebel is to be in tune spiritually with your spouse, both in the Word and in prayer. And then fight for joy in your marriage. Fight for it. Don't don't just passively lay down, I've lost, or it looks like I'm losing. You've got to fight for it. You've got to do everything that you can to find joy, both in your, but first of all, in God and in your spouse. And then serve your spouse. It doesn't matter whether you think your spouse is being unloving to you or stingy toward you or greedy around you or is just using you. Serve your spouse. Love them in ways that you know that they would enjoy and appreciate that and serve them more and serve them more. And that's just going to produce closeness and unity and harmony. And it's the way God designs for that to happen. And then get counsel. Write this one down. Get counsel before things get bad in your marriage. If you have struggles, if you've got just a problem, come and get counsel before it just unravels. Unfortunately, people get counsel when things are just way, way, way too far gone. And then be confident that what God has said and promised is better than what Jezebel has said and promised. All right, and the final one is to parents here. Parents. I think your temptation to listen to Jezebel is either twofold. I mean, it's, it's either one or the other. I think that, that Jezebel is either whispering in your ear and saying, Parents, hey, just, just be passive, all right? Don't, don't, don't monitor your kids, you know? Just let them, 
Let them play video games that have over-sexualized images and people on them. And uh, let them go over to people's houses that may or may not have pornographic material. Let them have, let them have phones and computers and think pads that, that uh, have full, unfettered access to the Internet. Um, I mean, hear no evil, see no evil. I mean, th th we're all sexual beings, and let your kid just discover all that at, at whatever point that they do. Jezebel would say that. Or Jezebel would be even more manipulative, and Jezebel would say, don't ever bring up sexuality at all. Don't, don't ever say the word sex. Don't ever be affectionate toward your spouse. Don't kiss your spouse. Don't hug your spouse. Don't hold hands. Don't show any sign of sexuality. And in that way, you'll protect your kid from ever dealing with that until by the time they get to be a teenager, it's time for them to get married or whatever the case may be. Then they'll be ready to hear that. And that's not good either. Because, that is, yeah, that is, a, that is a bomb waiting to be exploded. And so... What God would say is, no, 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 don't, don't do that. First of all, pursue Christ as a family. Have family worship. Read the Bible together, pray together, sing together. Show affection for one another as spouses. I mean, display love and affection and respect in front of your kids toward one another. Protect them from sinful influences. And I think this is the key. Have a plan for communication about sex with your kids. And I want to say this clearly. It's not just sex. It's about marital union and the sexual relationship. You don't have a talk with your kids about sex. You have a talk with your kids about marriage, about leaving and cleaving and weaving with your wife or with your husband so that there's enjoyment there, where there's holiness there and purity there. So that's the word for single men, single women, husbands and wives, and, and parents. Now, bear with me. We probably just have about uh, four or five more minutes. We probably have two, two groups of people in here today. We have those who are walking in purity right now. No matter what their past is, there are those who are walking in purity toward God in, sexual, uh, in their sexuality, in their sexual lives. And then there are those who are being defeated and they're, they're buying the lie of Jezebel, and maybe they know they're wrong, or they don't even think they're wrong, but they're living in sexual sin, all right? If you've fallen victim to Jezebel's just seduction, all right, these are a few things you need to know, all right? If you've, if you've fallen victim, you can write this down. First of all, know that forgiveness is available. Colossians chapter 2, just listen to this, y'all. Just let this, let this kind of wash over you. Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I just want you to know, whatever sin you have committed and whatever sins that right now you're entangled with, if you go to the cross, you need to know that at the cross, Christ has nailed all of those sins there and that you don't have to bear them. He bore them for you. Forgiveness is available. Um, I mean, clearance is available. Cleansing is available. I mean, if, even if you think about it in the progress of the gospel, y'all, think about this. At the cross, you can have forgiveness. All right? At the empty tomb, you can have power to walk in holiness you have resurrection power all right 
at the throne of God, at the very right hand of God, you have a mediator who is praying for you and helping you and, uh, and, and giving you everything that you need for life and godliness. And, 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 and in the heavenlies, you have a Savior who is going to return for you, who is going to rescue you from your life. That is the nature of the gospel. And you need to cling to that, both in the forgiveness at the cross and the power of the empty tomb and the mediation up in the throne. And then you have the Word and the Holy Spirit and the community of believers to help you. And I, I'm just not going to be able to get to some steps here um, for those who are entangled in sexual sin, but I do think that if you are, come to me. Come talk to me. And I've, got, I've got plenty of ways I feel like the Lord can, can uh, help you. Now, if you're walking in sexual purity, if you're walking in sexual purity, give thanks to God. Walk in humility and not in pride. Take heed lest you fall. Hold fast to Christ as Jesus is saying to the church of Thyatira, and help others. Let me tell you something. At Redeemer Church, we have a healthy and a, I think a right view of the depravity of sin, the depravity of human, the human soul. There's really just should be nothing that surprises us. I mean, we are twisted, we are wicked, we are evil. So y'all, there is a sense in which we should be appalled by sin, we should be offended by sin, but let's just don't get on our high horse and be self-righteous. Okay, let's understand that we're all sinners and let's deal with one another in the community and not have to hide it because we're afraid of what people would think. Let's be helpful to others. Do you remember what happened to Jezebel? After her husband Ahab was killed in battle, she reigned for 10 years through her sons Ahaziah and Joram. But they were ultimately killed by Jehu, who also killed Jezebel by having her thrown from the palace window. Jezebel was then trampled by horses and then eaten by dogs. And by the time the dogs finished with her, only her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands were left to bury when the dogs were finished. Listen, sexual sin, wickedness, it may prevail for a season, but the Son of God will ultimately and eternally triumph over the forces of evil, both outside the church and inside of it. And church, I want you to know that sexual sin is a sinking ship. Paul said the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is a sinking ship, but the gospel... The gospel is a rescue boat. Right after he says that the sexual immorality, the sexual immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says, but such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's saying you were washed by the cleansing power of the gospel. You were sanctified by the purifying power of of the gospel. And church, I want to offer I want to offer to rescue you this morning. You don't have to swim all by yourself all the way back to land. The water is too cold. It's too shark infested. It's it's too far from the land. You'll never make it on your own. But the gospel of Jesus Christ can get you safely to land. The gospel can rescue you. So this morning, call on the name of the Lord. 
and He will come and be your rescue. Amen.